Thank you for that, Elder Joe. It's always good to have those kinds of prayers and how dependent we are on God for his truth to be proclaimed and for us to be faithful and good listeners. Um, So we're going to take a detour from Luke this morning. Uh, We've been in Luke for a while. And uh, we're going to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 11, the great, the great faith chapter. And um, I was led to preach this message. I've been reading J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it, but it's an incredibly convicting book. Um, and I came across in that, there was a chapter in that book about the faith of Moses, which, again, I found to be a, a very convicting and, and uh, passage that, that I thought we could all benefit from. Um, so, you know, we, we often hear that Christians, we, we all ought to walk by faith, right? Walk by faith, right? It sounds like, it's like a nice thing to say, but what, what does it really mean practically? How do we walk by faith as Christians, right? Um, so we're going to look at Moses this morning. We're going to look at what faith made him do, the choices that he made, why he chose them, and, and, and how, you know, and how he made those choices, Right? And, and the title of the message is Crazy Faith, because when we look at the choices Moses made, they actually seem not normal. They're actually pretty radical choices, almost crazy. Okay, So we're, let's, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be reading uh, the Word of God beginning in chapter 23 uh, through 28. Hebrews 11, 23 through uh, 29, actually. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured to seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. God's holy word. All right, so the passage picks up for this morning. We're introduced to Moses' parents, and I think that that's a good segue into setting the stage of of Moses and, and, and the choices that he made. First of all, we see here that Moses was the child of faithful parents. His parents were Levites. And at this time, you may recall, the Israelites were in bondage. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh, as he saw the Egyptians, or as he saw the Israelites multiplying uh, at such a degree, he became a little afraid, a little concerned that the slave class was maybe getting going to be more powerful than the Egyptians. So he had a decree that all the children the male children of the Hebrews should be killed in an attempt to stop the growth of the population. But we see here that Moses' parents feared not that command, and they feared it not by faith. And when Moses was born, I'm going to borrow from Exodus 2 here, Moses' mother born, conceived a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child. She hid him three months, but after three months she couldn't hide him anymore. His identity would eventually become known. So she put him in an ark, put it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and put it in the reeds on a river's bank. And his sister, after he was put there, stood afar off to see what was going to happen to her brother. Now, when you want to see the sovereignty of God at work, 
God who knew he was going to deliver his people into the promised land through this great leader Moses. Lo and behold, of all the people in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river. And as she's getting ready to bathe, her maidens are walking around and they find this baby crying in the reeds. And the maid went to get it. She opened it, saw the child, and the baby started crying. Moses' sister springs into action. Hey, do you want me to get one of the uh, Hebrew maids and, and have her nurse the child for you? She says, go. So the sister goes and gets Moses' mother. And Moses' mother weans the child. Now, from my understanding, it wasn't, you know, today when we wean children, it's, it's kind of a short window. But in these days, maybe four years, maybe five years. During that period, as Moses was with her mother and father, what do you think he was learning about through the providence of God? He was learning that he wasn't an Egyptian, number one, but he was a Hebrew. He was a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God had given this nation great promises that one day they would return back to their land. That they were indeed God's people. And it was during these formative years that Moses learned his identity and who he was. But the time came for him to go back to Pharaoh's daughter. And and if if you allow me to borrow quickly from uh, uh, Acts 7, Stephen, during his discourse in Acts 7, we read that Moses, you know, Pharaoh's daughter took him, brought him up as her own son in the court of the Egyptians. And Moses became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Not only was he brought up as Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter's son, but he became mighty. He knew everything that was God. You've got to remember, Egypt at this time was the leading, leading country in the land. It was the, the hotbed of intellectual thought, architecture. Everything was there in the land of Egypt. And he became mighty. It's speculated he may have become the next Pharaoh. But the time came, as our passage in Hebrew says, he became of age. Now, Stephen tells us he was 40 years old, and it came into his heart to visit his brethren. So he knew that even though he was brought up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was at heart an Israelite, not an Egyptian. However, he was living as an Egyptian in the court of Pharaoh's house. So he decided to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So here is when Moses became of age. As he saw the two men fighting, he had to make a choice as to who he was. Was he an Israelite or was he an Egyptian? Was he of the people of God or the son of Pharaoh's daughter? After he struck the Egyptian, after the matter was heard by Pharaoh, he intended to kill Moses. So at that point, we may know the story, Moses fled to Midian. He was there 40 years with Jethro, his father-in-law, and eventually was, saw, uh, God spoke to him in the burning bush. He came back and led you know, through great signs and wonders of people out of Egypt. But the point of our message this morning is that when Moses made that choice to identify not as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, But as an Israelite, he gave up a lot of things. We learned the first thing he gave up was rank and greatness. By identifying with the people of God, he gave up being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What did that 
title mean? I mean, think about what titles mean to us today. Right? We're taught to work our whole life, to move up the ladder, if you will, to become greater in this and greater in that. I've known, I knew of a company once that didn't give people raises, but after they were there for a while, would change their titles so they sounded more important. And the funny thing is, that was fine with a lot of people. Oh, now, now I'm a senior account executive. You know, I'm still making the same money, but, you know, I'm senior now. Okay? I mean, it's because we identify with who we are in this world. The title that we have. Right? To be somebody, to be looked up to. Moses had the greatest title in the land. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was mighty. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He had a fast track to maybe being Pharaoh one day. He said, no, I don't want that. I'm going to identify with the people of God. On top of that, he refused pleasure. Now, mind you, in the court of Pharaoh, you could have anything in the world that you wanted at your fingertips. Wine, women, song. You know, the greatest sensual pleasure, intellectual pleasures, social pleasures. Whatever could strike his fancy was right there for the taking. A life of ease. A life of everything. No hard work, right? No sweat, no toil. No going outside and doing whatever he had to do or whatever it might have taken. He had all the pleasures of the world available to him. A lifetime of it in the richest nation in the world at that time. What did he choose? He chose to be with the people of God. Lastly, he refused riches. Now, when we look at the nation, you know, do you remember King Tut went around years ago? There was all these exhibits, right? There was all the gold and the splendor. And, you know, we can get a glimpse, like even looking today at the ruins of Egypt. I mean, it's still people marvel over the architecture of the pyramids and the great things that, that are available of this time, of this time period. They were so far advanced I mean, I've even heard people say that, well, you know, they had to have been visited from people from outer space in order to build those pyramids. There's no way they could have done it. Maybe you've heard it too, okay? But he refused the riches, the greatest riches of the world. Egyptian wealth gave up something that our English minds maybe find it hard to reckon with. So here's a man who had everything that he could have wanted in this world, but he turned the other way. No to greatness, no to pleasure, no to riches. And I might say, well, that's great, Moses. You know, like, wow, that's a good example for us. But when we look at what he chose, then this comes even more into focus. We read that he made the conscious choice to suffer affliction with the people of God. Who chooses pain? Like pain and suffering are things we want to avoid. To identify with the people of God, he left the ease and the comfort of Pharaoh's court. He openly took part with the children of Israel. They were an enslaved and persecuted people. But he would rather be afflicted with them than be identified with being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And the people of Israel this time, he chose the company of an afflicted people a despised people. He left the society of the great and wise, among whom he had been brought up, and joined himself to the children of Israel who were slaves, who were destitute, poor, afflicted, tormented. Right? Like 
Not the high society, but the lowest of society. So he chose to be identified with that rather than have everything that was afforded to him as being the title of the, again, I keep saying the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now you know why I call this crazy faith. Who does such a thing? Who's going to leave wealth, honor, privilege, and choose affliction, suffering, and to be associated with the despised people? How does he do that? I mean, for those of you, it's so, such a blessing to see young people here, and people my age and older, whatever. You know, kids going to college, kids in college. We're told to work hard for rank, for title, for wealth, for greatness, get good grades. That's how you find happiness in this life. And I would encourage you, please, work hard, get good grades, fight, you know, get a good job. All that stuff is good, but the matter is really the matter of the heart. And what do we value? How did Moses make this choice? What was the motivation, the inspiration that caused him to walk out of the best job in the world, with all the pleasures in the world, with the greatest title in the world, and to choose suffering and affliction, and to be identified with a despised people. Well, the, t- the, t- the, 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 the passage tells us it was by faith. By faith, Moses did these things. So before we move on, let's define faith. What is faith? When we say faith, what are we, what are we talking about? Right? Is it some just kind of oh, faith, you know? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So by faith, we see things that are invisible, and we act upon them. In a sense, it's a channel of living trust that stretches from man to God. We trust in which we don't see. Now, we can stop there and say, okay, there's our definition. But faith has to have an object, right? Because I might have my God, you have your God, or I have what I believe and you have what you believe. I have faith in it, you have faith in it. So we have faith. We're all good, right? The faith of Moses was a faith that had the one true God as its object. The triune God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, fa- the God who is revealed in Scripture, the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who will one day come back and judge his, his, his world, the God who has revealed himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the object of Moses' faith. And unless our, that is the object of our faith, it is misplaced. And it is in vain. So we, we, and lastly, how do we get that faith? How do we get faith? The faith of Moses. So we have it defined, we have its object, and how do we get it? Well, we know that faith is what? The gift of God. So to truly have this transformative faith that causes us to make these choices... It takes a supernatural act to occur in our lives that we are infused with this ability to, to, to make decisions and act on that which is unseen. To get back to the gospel for a moment, right? Ephesians 2.1, you as he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We're by nature 
the children of that wrath, and we're in the, the spirit of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy with the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. If you want me to, I'm just going to borrow from the Westminster Catechist, um, uh, Confession. God pardons our sins by accounting and accepting persons as righteous, not by anything wrought in them or done with them, but for Christ's sake alone. Our act of believing is not looked at as obedience of faith or righteousness in any way, but we receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness by faith, which is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied by all other savings graces and is no dead faith, but by faith that works by love. In other words, that faith is a gift and that faith works itself out in us once we've been given to, given, uh, it's been given to us. Okay? So the first step we have to take, because the rest of this sermon will mean nothing unless we've taken that first step and have experienced that supernatural birth, being born again and been given that, that gift of faith through Jesus Christ. Have we all here responded to the gospel and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. And although God is sovereign in salvation, the scripture assures us, Jesus says, he who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Whosoever will, let him come. Come and drink of the waters of life freely while it is day. Receive the faith Be justified from your sins and have the gift of eternal life. If we are there this morning, saving faith is one that is not dead. Right? Faith without works is dead. If we say we have faith and we have no works, we have to question our faith. What we see in Moses' life is that faith being played out through the decisions that he made and the choices that he made and how he lived his life. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaks therein, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God in this life and that which is to come. Resting on Jesus Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. What does it mean to walk by faith? It means, we, yes, we, 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 we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but walking by faith means that that faith plays out in our life. It becomes the perspective, the lens, the telescope in which we view everything around us. Not through the lens of the world, but through the lens of Scripture through the lens of how God describes this this world and this earth, and it shapes our circumstances and how we behave. 
Now, when we look at Moses, was he looking to the visible or the invisible, which is by faith? When he saw the wealth of Egypt, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. Where's the wealth of Egypt today? The glory is well past. What about the glory of Christ that is yet to be revealed? It's coming and it's forever. But we can't see it, can we? Can't see it. How do we accept it? We trust in that which is invisible by faith. He saw the treasures, the wealth, and the fame of Egypt, but chose by the invisible promises of God and the future eternal reward. And as Ryle put it, God set before the eyes of his mind his own will and his purpose. God revealed to him that a savior was to be born to the stock of Israel, that mighty promises were bound up in these children of Abraham yet to be fulfilled, that the time for fulfilling a portion of these promises was at hand, and Moses put credit in this and believed. So now all of a sudden, crazy faith doesn't seem as crazy it starts to come into focus why Moses would make these choices. And it all comes down to his faith and how he viewed what he saw versus what was invisible. By faith and with an eternal perspective, he saw the eternal inheritance of the people of God and what was more, uh, you know, what was more valuable than the inheritance of Pharaoh that would one day vanish and go away. By faith and with an eternal perspective, Moses saw affliction more valuable than the passing pleasures of sin, which are displeasing to God. By faith and with an eternal perspective, he chose to identify with reproaches of Christ, saw suffering as great riches. Like when we view suffering Who wants to suffer? We look at that as a a bad thing. But he saw it as a good thing because it shaped him for the future and molded him to be more like his God. He saw that as greater riches than Egypt. Think about that. You can have all the money in the world or you could suffer and be more like Christ. What do you choose? Well, if you're thinking about the here and now, well, I'll take the money. But if you realize that this world is just a speck in eternity and what's to come is what really matters, I'll take the suffering because it's just a short time. That was Moses' perspective. And that's how his faith shaped his choices. It's why he put aside rank, title, and all of these different things, chose suffering and affliction, because he saw what was invisible. So, the challenge then is what do we do with this, right? How, how do I apply that to me? And you might say, well, well, well DeLeo, you know, I'm, I'm not Moses. I'm not leading the people out of the promised land. This isn't for me. Come on. That's really hard. But I'll say to you, well, I know we all know 1 John 2.15. And it says there, do not love the world or the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, was that passage to Moses, or was it written to the church? It's written to the church. And Moses' life is really an application of that verse. Because he loved not the world. He loved not the title. He loved not the riches. He loved not the sensual pleasures. He loved not the pride of life. And he saw that the world and the lust thereof were passing away. And he lived accordingly. And we are called to do the same thing. By faith. It's not just for Moses. It's for all of us. I'm going to read a passage to you from Ryle's book, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I ask you to pay attention, but it's convicting, and I ask you to listen. And Ryle writes this, but the matter comes to this. Do you wish your soul to be saved? Then remember, you must choose whom you will serve. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot be on two sides at once. You cannot be a friend of Christ and a friend of the world at the same time. You must come out from the children of this world and be separate. You must put up with much ridicule, trouble, and opposition, or you will be lost forever. You must be willing to think and do things which the world considers foolish and to hold opinions which are held by only a few. It will cost you something. The stream is strong but you have to stem it. The way is narrow and steep, and it is no use saying it is not, but depend on it. There can be no saving religion without sacrifices and self-denial. Now, are you making any sacrificing, any sacrifices? Does your religion cost you anything? I put it to your conscience in all affection and tenderness, Are you like Moses, preferring God to the world or not? I beseech you not to take shelter under the dangerous word we. We ought, and we hope, and we mean, and the like. I ask you, plainly, what are you doing yourself? Are you willing to give up anything which keeps you back from God? Or are you clinging to the Egypt of the world and saying to yourself, I must have it, I must have it. I cannot tear myself away. Is there any cross in your Christianity? Are there any sharp corners in your religion? Anything that ever jars and comes in collision with the earthly mindedness around you? Or is it smooth and rounded off and comfortably fitted into custom and fashion? Do you know anything of the afflictions of the gospel? Is your faith and practice ever a subject of scorn and reproach? Are you thought a fool by anyone because of your soul? Have you left Pharaoh's daughter and heartily joined the people of God? Are you venturing all on Christ? Search and see. These are hard inquiries and rough questions. End quote. Okay. Uh, I think that, you know, I don't know how you felt hearing that. I know how I felt reading it, and I know how I felt reading it again to all of you. 
you know, there, there, there's a tendency in our world today, in our church today, to take all the edges off Christianity, to take the cross off of Christianity, that it's all about having a good time, having, we talk, having your best life now, having wealth and prosperity in this life, and nothing of affliction, nothing of suffering, nothing of denying yourself, nothing of carrying your cross. Brothers and sisters, that, that's vain religion, I'm, I'm sorry to say, on the authority of the word of God. Faith calls us to make difficult choices in our lives, but choices that make perfect sense if our eyes are not on this world, but we're looking heavenward. Now, if we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can have a weak faith. Moses' faith wasn't perfect. You just read the book of Exodus. But we are called to be more like Christ and less like the world and to make these choices, to refuse the passing pleasures of sin and to embrace the fight, the warfare, That is to be for the Christian. How do we do that? How do we get closer to God? How do we increase our faith so that these choices become more and more natural for us and more and more evident in our life and more and more pleasing to God as we walk before him? The one thing I want to caution us on is, and and I say this just because this is a lesson that that the Lord revealed to me. I'm... I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. I believe that my will was absolutely passive when I was saved. That I was walking in trespasses and sin. God made me hear the gospel. He made me alive and called me to himself. That was his grace. And glory be to God for that what he does in the lives of his believers. But once you are saved, you can't sit back and say, well, I'm waiting for God to work in me. You know, I, I, I know I got to work in this area. You know, I, I'm praying, I'm waiting for God to do something. No. That's a trap. Don't buy into that. Because once you have been given the Spirit of God, you are alive. And the commands of God are not passive. They're active. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith it is it impossible to please him, for he that come to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The command is to diligently seek God. We can't wait back and say, I'm waiting for God to make me diligently seek him. No, do it. Seek him. How do we seek God? And what I'm going to go over is really Christianity 101. But the question is, are we applying it in our lives? Are we diligently seeking God? Nobody can do this for you. You have to do it yourself. It's no one else's fault. You must take the action. Private prayer. How's our prayer life? Are we taking the time to spend those moments with God and reveal our heart to him? Are we taking 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Pray without ceasing. You get in the car, you start driving. Anxiety about work. Anxiety about family. Oh, instead of, like, we, we stress about things. Things go through our mind. But, Lord, oh, I'm going through this. Start speaking to God. How about getting on our knees, taking that private time? Everything's quiet, and we're seeking God. It says right here in my scripture, and in your scripture, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Private prayer. How about the private reading of the scripture? Is it just Sundays? Are we taking that devotional time, opening up the word every day? Seeking God? We can't expect our faith to grow. 
if we're not doing those things. We can't have that heavenly perspective if we're not seeking God in private reading of Scripture, private meditation and self-examination. Am I taking that time? How am I living before God? Where am I struggling? Am I confessing it to Him? Sunday worship is also a means of grace that God has given us. And it's great that we're all here this morning. The uniting of God's people in common prayer and praise, the preaching of the word, and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, which the Lord willing will have this morning, these are all great things. But what we have to, what we have to be careful of is that we can get very familiar with coming to church. Right? We come in, we sing our hymn, we hear the exhortation, the psalm, the preach, I go home, check the box, next Sunday I'm back. We've got to be careful that when we come in here, we're diligently seeking God through the corporate worship. This is a blessing to be together, that we encourage one another, that we can talk about the things of the Lord, that we can confess our faults to one another, that we can affirm our beliefs that God has revealed to us through his word, that there's like-minded people among us that are sharing our Christian faith and can identify with the struggles and the weaknesses and, and the afflictions of this life. That's a blessing we have each other. We enjoy each other. But as I believe the, the passage is Ecclesiastes. When we go about our public means, let us do it with all our might. Let us worship to, heartily to the Lord as a congregation. And lastly, I, I want to just encourage us that we're seeking diligently the Lord Jesus Christ and intimacy. Like, we can know a lot about Jesus, right? We know, you know, he walked in Jerusalem, he suffered on the cross, died for our sins. You know, we know the Christmas story. We can have an orthodox knowledge of him as mediator between God and man. And justification is not by faith and not by works. But we have to go further than that. Intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ. Like, well, sometimes here, you know, people will say, Jesus is my personal savior. Personal savior means personal relationship that we have with him through the word. Not about Jesus, but knowing Jesus. And we can seek to do that by, again, in doing those private means of grace and public worship. Seek to know Jesus. Seek to know him. Right? Paul said, I think it's Philippians 4, that I may know him. Right? And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being even made conformable to his death. So brothers and sisters, our faith, as we, as we stand this morning, I'm going to now go back to the book of Hebrews and I'm just going to just grab a couple excerpts. And just to give us some practical examples of how the saints have lived their lives. These people are just like us, sinners, in this body of flesh that desires all the same things that we desire, that fights all the same things that we fight. You know, we read um, in, in 11, reading of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and of Noah, we read that they waited for a, a maker whose 
builder and city was God by, uh, I'm sorry, uh, wrong, wrong passage, bear with me. 13 is what I was looking at. Uh, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that seek those things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly, if they had been mindful of the country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? They, they, they looked at the city to come. They confessed they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. We have to see ourselves, like, you know, we hear it again. It becomes cliche that sometimes it loses its meaning. Well, you know, I'm just passing through, or, you know, I'm not part of this world, right? Like, we're, we're, I just, to keep our eyes by faith on that which is invisible, the coming kingdom of God is going to really help shape and put into perspective the afflictions we face in this life. Everything we face, whether it be health, trials, tribulations, pains, sufferings, are passing. They're temporary in light of what's to come. All the riches of the world don't mean anything on a man's deathbed because they're going to be flying away. The saints had an eternal perspective. And um, I'm going to close on on a couple of things here. When I was reading the the book of Hebrews and I was getting ready for this message, um, I, I, I started reading uh, the end, like uh, chapter 32 through the end of the chapter. And, and, and I felt like, you know, I don't know if any of you ever played sports, but to me it was like a locker room speech by a coach, okay? You know, like before maybe you, you know, win one for the Gipper or, you know, there, there's, a, there's a team in the room and it's like, all right, we're going to go out and we're going to fight and no one's going to beat us, you know, and the team runs out, right? So, so that's kind of where I hope we'll feel <laughs> when I get done reading this. Because the things that the saints have done and are recorded for us in Scripture are amazing. But they're just like us. And they all do them by faith. The same faith we possess if we have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can do this too. So bear with me as I try to sound like a coach. I'm trying to push us forward here. Okay? What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains that had been imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us 
that they, that we, I'm sorry, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Think about what we just read. For the faith, people were cut in two. And the world wasn't worthy of them. The more we live by faith and forsake this world, the more worthy we are for God and his kingdom, and the world is not worthy of us by the grace of God. I want you to be encouraged to increase your faith, to seek God through prayer. Diligently seek him. Let your faith grow and see your life be more pleasing to God. Moses did great things. The saints did great things. They gave their lives by faith and looking to the eternal reward that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, and I'm going to close with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May we look to our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us put aside the sin that ensnares, and let us walk by faith, pleasing to our God, empowered by his grace, and be saints fitting for his use. Amen.